0: Good morning. morning. How are you today? It's good to see you back. Hey, if you are here for the first time, I'd like to welcome you too. Welcome, everyone. We're going through the book of Leviticus. Um, We've been going uh, through the book of Leviticus for the past couple of months now, and we love it. the book of Leviticus is not a very popular book. If you ask an average Christian his favorite book, it would there's a good chance it's not Le- the book of Leviticus. Uh, s- survey. Anyone who, who have read Leviticus? That's, that's the point. <laughs> this is hard. The book of Leviticus is one of the first five books of the Bible, but this is not the book that you go to when, say, you want to improve your marriage or you're trying to, improve your your business or that you're trying to seek wisdom from you know general way of life this is not the book that you go to the book of leviticus has a lot of weird rituals and and very strange laws and it's really hard to understand passage that people are are put off by reading this book in fact when i tried to start reading the book of leviticus i read it from the king james version the King James Version is the English vernacular of the 16th century. So you get the, the these and the thous and the yous. Uh, it's hard. So I, I read the book. I, I did not understand anything. <laughs> Second attempt, I read this book, Leviticus. I was in the seminary. It's It was a required reading. And we used a more contemporary English version. Uh, I, I got something. I got something. Uh, but I, at the end of the day... Um, I did not really understand the whole thing. It just still looked like Jackson Pollock's paintings. Too abstract for me. But then the more I study the culture and the history and the geography and the literary structure of the book, the more I dig deeper, the more I appreciate this book has a lot to say about God. But I understand that not a lot of people would go through this because, again, it's hard. Let me tell you a secret. Not a lot of pastors preach on the book of the Vicus. Why? Because you've got to have a lot of patience and determination to read through tons of books in order to understand this. So I understand the excuse why we're not reading the book of Leviticus, but it doesn't excuse us because we cannot afford not to read this book because if we don't read this book, we will never understand who Jesus and what Jesus did. The whole thing that surrounds the story of Jesus Goes all the way back to Leviticus and the whole Old Testament. Now I believe that people avoid reading this book because we do not understand its context. Uh, the thing about this is that when we don't understand the culture, the history, and the geography and the terms, uh, we skip this. We go to other passages, which is more, uh, which is not that hard to understand. But if we try our best, I think the Holy Spirit will enable us to understand this. So let, let me put this in context. The first five books of the Bible are called the Torah. Now, we're not talking about Matthew, Mark, Luke, Acts, and John. We're talking about Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Now, every Jew has memorized the Torah, the whole Torah. They have this ceremony called Bar Mitzvah. When you turn 13, you will be initiated as as an adult in a Jewish culture. And you will have to memorize the whole Torah from Genesis all the way to Deuteronomy. Did you know that there's there's a story about these first five books of the Bible? When you read the first five books of the Bible, you get stories. So Genesis tells you, The origin of Israel, everything about origin. That's why it's called Genesis, the origin of Israel. The book of Exodus tells you that they got in trouble and God rescued them from Egypt. That's a summary of it. I'm going to skip Leviticus. The book of Numbers tells you that for 40 years, they were not able to handle their freedom. They failed miserably. And the book of Deuteronomy tells you the summary of what they did and what they have to do to enter the promised land. So where does Leviticus fit in? Leviticus actually answers the questions why God decided to rescue them. Second, how to remain in God's good graces. And third, what do they have to do to make it to the promised land? Now, these are the books books of the Torah. But today, I want to talk to you about, very carefully, about Leviticus chapter 17. The middle of the whole book of Leviticus lies with 16 and 17. So we already talked about 16. I want to talk to you about chapter 17. What is chapter 17 of the book of Leviticus? It's about three things. It's about the worship of demons, blood sacrifice, and the Lord's Supper. Let me say that again. It's about the worship of demons, blood sacrifice, and the Lord's Supper. I want to give you two reasons why you should listen to the sermon and not fall asleep. One, it's because you want to know how this is connected to the Lord's Supper. What is Leviticus 17 all about? How is this connected to the Last Supper or the Lord's Supper? And secondly, why in the world, if all the things that Jesus say, the last words on the cross is, it is finished? Why? This is Leviticus 17. You ready? Let's read beginning from verse 3. It says, If any one of the house of Israel kills an ox or lamb or goat in the camp or kills it outside the camp and does not bring it to the entrance of the tent of the meeting, to offer it as a gift to the Lord in front of the tabernacle, blood guilt shall be imputed to that man. He has shed blood. Now every time you hear You read from the Bible, shedding of blood. It means murder. And that man shall be cut off from among his people. This is to the end that the people of Israel may bring their sacrifices, that they sacrifice in the open field, that they may bring them to the Lord, to the priests at the entrance of the tent of the meeting, and sacrifice them as sacrifices of peace offerings to the Lord. And the priests shall throw the blood on the altar of the Lord, at the entrance of the tent of meeting, and burned the fat for a pleasing aroma to the Lord. So they shall no more sacrifice their sacrifices to goat demons after whom they whore. This shall be a statute forever for them throughout these generations. What's that all about? Tabernacle and rituals and blood and demons and fat and pleasing aroma to God. What's this all about? This law prohibits any Israelite from offering a sacrifice outside the tabernacle compound. I mean, the, the map of Israel is, is huge. If you live in the north or you live in the south, whenever you kill an animal and offer it a sacrifice, you have to go all the way to Jerusalem, to the temple, and offer it there. You are prohibited from offering your sacrifice anywhere else except in the temple. Why? It gives us one reason. So they shall no more sacrifice their sacrifices to goat demons. I know what you're thinking. Did they really worship goat demons? The answer is yes. The evidence is enormous that they worship goat demons. We don't have any in-depth information about these goat demons, but the Bible alludes to a lot of passages about these Israelites who have worshipped goat demons. In fact, it shouldn't come as a surprise because in the ancient Near Eastern world, people are polytheists. That means they believe in pantheon of gods. They have collection of gods. Now, a lot of us, we collect shoes, <laughs> shoes and clothes, but in the, in the ancient Near East, they collect gods. They love gods. And by gods, we don't mean the... Self-existent, uncreated, all-powerful, all-knowing, everywhere present, loving and gracious God. When we say gods, we mean the small g-o-d, spirits, or spiritual being. In fact, the technical term for that is shedim. Shadim means demons. The Israelites worship demons. See, Moses wrote the last book of the Torah. It's called Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy is a recap of what happened to their 40 years in the wilderness. And he addressed the second generation by telling them what happened to their fathers, how they worshipped the goat demons for 40 years. Listen to Moses, Deuteronomy 32, and he will mention also the worship of demons. He said they seared him to jealousy. He means God, Yahweh. Yahweh was steered to jealousy with strange gods. The word for this is Elohim. With abominations, they provoked him to anger. They sacrificed to demons, shadim, that were no gods, to gods they have never known, to new gods that had come recently, whom your fathers had never dreaded. He was trying to explain to the second generation that their fathers tried to worship demon gods, not only worshiping Yahweh, but worship also other gods, the demon gods. That means for 40 years, they were not fully devoted to Yahweh. They've collected gods, but Yahweh was the top deity, but they also worship other deities here. You know, this is like finally getting married, but you don't want to get rid of your ex-girlfriends, so you keep them around. You just prioritize your wife. That's what Israel does. You see, marriage doesn't work like that. Because marriage demands exclusivity with any amen to that? Marriage demands exclusivity. you got to be devoted to your wife. That means you have to cut off relationship, communication, devotion from your past. You have to move on to your future. That means you have, to, you have to devote your time, your energy, your effort to this one relationship. That also means you have to stop going around and flirting with other girls. Yes? And other boys. I have to be fair. You know, Israel failed to worship and devote only to Yahweh, and therefore Yahweh was jealous. Now, you will read that in the Bible. Yahweh was a jealous God. Because if Israel will simply accommodate Yahweh with their pantheon of gods, they're basically saying Yahweh is just one of the gods. That is not true. Yahweh was very clear who he is. In fact, in Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4, he said, Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God. The Lord is one God. There's one God. The Jews are monotheists. There's only one God. He cannot be compared to other gods. Your wife will never agree to be compared with your exes. Correct? Amen. Thank you very much. I mean, God must be worshipped exclusively. This is probably the reason why the second commandment says, You shall have no other gods before me. Because truly, there's only one God. That is why you cannot be a Christian and a Buddhist at the same time. That means you have to decide your allegiances. You cannot be a devoted follower of Jesus Christ only on Sundays, but on weekdays, you're you're not sure. You see, allegiance must be 24-7. It's either you are or you're not. Worship is about allegiance. So you can worship only God, and God alone, or not at all. Chapter 16 is about Yom Kippur. Now, to those of you who are not familiar with Yom Kippur, it's called the Day of Atonement. The Jews still celebrate this, this day, the Day of Atonement every year. It is where there's a ritual where God cleanses away the sins of the people. He forgives the sins of the people. It's a day also of forgiving and reconciliating with other people. So for the Jews, this is a very solemn and special day. And on this day, there's a ritual that involves Azazel. Now, who is this guy? What is this? Azazel. Let me read to you chapter 16, verse 8. It says, And Aaron shall cast lots over the two goats. So there's this ritual about the two goats on the Day of Atonement. One lot, one goat, will be for the Lord, and the other lot, that goat for Azazel. And Aaron shall present the goat on which the lot fell for the Lord and use it as a sin offering. But the goat on which the lot fell for Azazel shall be presented alive before the Lord to make atonement over it, that it may be sent away into the wilderness to Azazel. So one goat is killed, given to God. The other goat is stays alive, and it's driven to the wilderness to a to a certain being called Azazel. Now, the Bible did not fully explain who this guy is. But if we dig a little bit deeper into the ancient Near Eastern literature, we will find two documents that mention Azazel. One is the Book of Enoch, which the Catholic Bible uh, has it, and the the Dead Sea Scrolls from the Qumran Cave number 4, 180 scroll. Let me read to you first Enoch chapter 10. The whole earth has been corrupted through the works that were taught by Azazel. To him ascribe all sin. Now, now we understand, this looks like a sinister guy. Somebody who resembles you know, the, the snake that tempted Adam and Eve. And to Gabriel said the Lord. Now Gabriel is the angel who announced the pregnancy of Mary. Are you still with me? And to Gabriel said the Lord, proceed against the bastards and the reprobates and against the children of fornication, and destroy the children of the watchers from amongst men. Send them one against the other, that they may destroy each other in battle. Now, what is this passage talking about? It mentioned Azazel, but it mentioned something else. This passage only makes sense if you read Genesis chapter 6. In Genesis chapter 6, the Bible will say that there are angels from heaven who came down to earth, intermarried with human, human beings, women, and produced angels called Nephilim. The book of Enoch is talking about Azazel to be one of those angels or fallen angels. Are you still with me so far? I hope this is not confusing to you. Now, these giant offsprings were the main reason Whom God wanted Israel to eliminate from Canaan. This is the reason why God told Joshua to eliminate the people of Israel in Canaan, because of these giants. You know, David fought one of these. His name is Goliath, or Goliath, the offspring of Azazel, or maybe one of those angels. And this mentions Azazel, another document, the Dead Sea Scrolls. 4Q 180, that's on the fourth cave, they dug up these scrolls, uh, dug dug up, this was written about the first century uh, AD. Uh, Scroll 180, it says, and the interpretation concerns Azazel and the angels who came to the daughters of men and they bore to them giants. And concerning Azazel and iniquity and to cause them all to inherit wickedness. So that means this passage simply supports the idea that there's a group of angels or fallen angels who came to earth, intermarried with human women, produced giants, and, and recruited the, the whole world to rebel against God. And the idea is that this Azazel was cast into the wilderness as a punishment. The wilderness is a place of death and nothingness. You know, I lived in Arizona for quite a bit, and people thought that Arizona is like desert all around. It's hot in Arizona, it's true, but it's not just desert. We, we have lush forests also in Arizona, but there's a certain place that is concentrated with just simply sand. You know, in the Middle East, you have a lot of that, and the idea is that this wilderness is the destination of punishment for Azazel. See the, the the problem with the 1948 U, UN resolution when they partitioned the the Palestine into for the Jews and for the Palestine for the Palestinians, the, the huge portion of what was given to Israelites were were the Negev desert. It's deserts. It's unlivable. The desert was supposed to be the destination of Azazel. That was his domain. He lives in there. Don't you find it interesting? that Jesus mentioned the desert in connection with demon possession? Matthew chapter 12. It says, when an unclean spirit had gone out of a person, unclean unclean is the language of Leviticus. When an unclean spirit, that means demons, had gone out of a person. Now, now, let me say that a little bit here. Not a lot of people believe in demon possession. Not a a lot of people believe that demons exist. Oh, they do. They do, for two reasons. Number one, the Bible says it. Jesus, in fact, mentioned it. Secondly, I witnessed it firsthand. All right? Maybe some of you have not really experienced, but there's a lot of people who are demon-possessed today. Don't you find it odd that a lot of serial killers would always confess that when before they kill someone, there's a voice that tells them to murder someone. That's demon possession. That's not insanity. That's demon possession. And what Jesus is saying here is that when an unclean spirit had gone out of the person, it passes through waterless places. What is a waterless places? It's a desert. It's the wilderness. It's where you find demonic spirits in the wilderness. You see, the desert is the waterless places. It shouldn't come as a surprise that Jesus... Spent 40 days, and after that, he was tempted by the devil. Where? In the wilderness, in the desert. You see, you are most vulnerable, I think, not when you're reading your Bible, not when you're praying, not when you're going to church. I think you are most vulnerable when you're busy doing your thing rather than the things of God. I think we are more vulnerable to temptations when we are busy building our career than building the kingdom of God. You see, this is the reason why Jesus said, if anyone wants to follow me, let him deny himself. The first step is the denial of oneself. In fact, he demonstrated it when he, he in fact, after baptism, he went to the wilderness. He had to give up everything. He went for a fast for 40 days and 40 nights. He had to demonstrate the cost of discipleship. And by that, I'm not saying that you leave your jobs and go full-time, become full-time pastors and missionaries. What I'm saying is that we have to straighten our priorities. What is your priority? What is on top of your list? How do we know your priority? Tell me your bucket list. Is there anything there that's about God? If the whole bucket list is all about you and your achievements and your dreams for yourself, then I think we have to straighten our priorities. You see, the, reasons, the reason why the Israelites sacrificed to goat demons was because they were traveling in the desert, and they know that the desert was the territory of the enemy. They were afraid. What they could not understand is that if you have Yahweh, if you have God who's protecting you, these goat demons, you don't have to please them. You don't have to sacrifice them. They cannot understand that. What they understood is that there are plenty of gods. Gods are territorial, and this is the territory of the goat demons, and therefore we have to worship them. That's the reason why they worship the goat demons. You see, a lot of Asians, we know this. When we pass by an anthill, a mound of dirt, what do we say? Tabi-tabi po. Why? Because we believe there are spirits who live. You know, excuse me. Excuse me because we're afraid. There might be dwarves, you know, the seven dwarves with snow white lives in there. When I was a child, I used to believe that that dwarves live in the mound of dirt. So I I do that also. Excuse me. Tabi-tabi po. But same thing with the Israelites. When they went through the desert for 40 years, they were thinking, oh, this is a territory of the goat demon. We have to worship them. But they could not understand that they have the protection of Yahweh. They couldn't wrap their heads around that idea that Yahweh is more powerful. They couldn't understand that if you belong to Yahweh, these goat demons cannot touch you. Let me give you one truth here to live with. If you are a follower of Jesus Christ, the Bible says your body is the temple of God. And if your body is the temple of God, you cannot be demon-possessed. Do I hear an amen to that? You don't have to be afraid of demons. The demons can hurt you by another person or by some supernatural event, but you cannot be possessed. Your body is owned by God himself. You're the temple of the Holy Spirit. Now when we read the Yom Kippur there's a ritual there where goat is released to Azazel now the reason why this goat is released into the wilderness is not for the purpose of appeasing Azazel it's not a sacrifice to him the whole idea is to teach Israel that this goat becomes the carrier of all sins this is like a dump truck of all the garbage it's to teach Israel that all the filth, all the uncleanness on that particular day, it will be transferred to this goat and it will be sent to Azazel. That means Azazel is just one of those that were dwelling in the place called death and sin. Nothing more. He's, he's, not, the, he's not the main manager. Now, I think this is the confusion here. When we talk about hell, we, th- we think that the manager, the one that rules hell, is the guy by the name of Satan. And he's like the boss in there. He's, the truth is that hell is a place of punishment. Everyone who goes there will be punished. There's no tear management in hell. In fact, in the wilderness, it's the same thing. There's no tear management. Azazel does not rule the wilderness, he's also bound in the wilderness. That is his punishment. You know, in 1966, there's a guy by the name of Anton LaVey founded the Church of Satan complete with doctrines and rituals the whole nine yards. He even wrote their Bible, the Satanic Bible. What I want you to see is the sigil that he chose to put in his book. I hope you're looking at it. Now, it's called the sigil of Baphomet. Baphomet is part man, part angel, because it has wings, and part goat. It represents the church of Satan. And during the Black Mass... Levee would bless, you know, at the end of the service, I bless you, I raise my hands. The Church of Satan would also do that. Levee, the high priest, would bless the congregation by using the devil's horns. You see this? You know, a lot of celebrities, a lot of politicians, a lot of big-time people use this as if it's cool. It's not cool. This is a way to bless through the Baphomet, through the demon gods. Now, if, in case you go to a farm, and we have a lot of farms here in Florida, and you see a goat, it has nothing to do with goat demons. All right? They're good. You can eat them. All right? They're not evil. What I'm saying is that this, the symbol that is used for Baphomet, is the goat. So the goat is okay, but the symbol that is the problem. And the reason why God commands the Israelites to sacrifice only in the tabernacle is not because his powers and protection only works in the tabernacle, or that because God is not everywhere present, or it's not because God cannot hear you from certain places. The reason why for God's commandment not to sacrifice in an open field is so that they will not mix the worship of God and Azazel. That's the only reason. This is to remind them that their only devotion is Yahweh. This is like, you know, the symbolism of today. You know, a ring tells us that we are bound by a solemn promise to our wife, right? The the house that we go to at the end of the day tells us that I belong to a family. My devotion lies there in my family. The church that you go to at the end of the week tells you that you belong to a spiritual family. The reason why you pray every day, I hope it's every day, it's reminding you that you belong to God. See, these rituals matter because this reminds us of things that really matters. Now everything in, almost everything involves ritual. And every ritual has a meaning. That means what you do and how you do it matters. What about blood sacrifice? Leviticus chapter 7, verse 10. Now listen to this. If any of the house of Israel or the strangers who sojourn among them eats any blood, I will set my face against that person who eats blood, and I will cut him off from among his people. Now this is not, not in any sense metaphorical. This is literally the blood. When you kill an animal, there's blood, the red that goes out from the animal. And in according to verse eleven, for the life of the flesh is in the blood. If I have given it for you on the altar to make atonement for your sin. For it is the blood that makes atonement by the life." You can almost hear a, a tense tone, a very stern tone with this command. Because the penalty for violating this command when you eat blood, you sacrifice an animal and you eat the blood, is you will be cut off from amongst people. Why, what is this? What does it have to do with, with being cut off from amongst? Why is it so serious? Should we take this seriously? Now, what does it symbolize in fact? Now, blood symbolizes life. That means God is the giver of life. And therefore, God is the only one who can take life away. That's why when a person or an Israelite kills an animal and drinks the blood, he's shedding blood. It's murder. In the understanding of the Bible, it's murder. Do you remember the story about Cain and Abel? Yes? So Cain killed his brother because he was jealous. And God confronted Cain and said to him the blood of your brother Christ from the ground for justice. And this is what Cain said, Genesis chapter 4, 13. He said, My punishment is greater than I can bear. Behold, you have driven me today away from the ground, and from your face I shall be hidden. From your face I shall be hidden because he committed murder. That means God will not look upon him anymore. You know our benediction, Numbers chapter 6, the Lord Bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you. Blessing. That means God is taking away the blessing from Cain. And Cain knows that. He will not have the face of God look upon him anymore. You see, the language of Leviticus 17 is almost the same. If you eat blood, I will set my face against that person. That means if you eat blood, you're also committing murder. Leviticus 17. Now apparently, to understand this better, why do the Israelites eat blood? See, the ritual of worship of the goat demons involves the eating of the blood. Now, this is not very specific to the ancient East. There are other religions that do this in their worship. The Aztecs did this. Uh, some of the Filipino indigenous tribes do this in the mountains. When they offer a pig, they drink the blood. We also have that blood compact thing uh, in the time of Magellan and the Spaniards, when they came over, and they would do blood compact, they would slit their hands, put the blood on a cup mixed with wine, and they will, you know, drink. It's very, it's part of the ritual of worship. So the Israelites are forbidden to drink blood in the context of worshiping the goat demons. He said, my punishment is too great that I cannot bear, and that his face will be hidden. From him, so that so that's the reason why God says that if you, if you're an Israelite kills an animal in an open field, he must pour the blood on the ground and cover it with dirt or the earth. Let me read to you verse thirteen. Anyone, also the people of Israel or the strangers, who sojourn among them, who takes in hunting any beast or bird that may be eaten, shall pour out its blood and cover it with the earth. For the life of every creature is its blood. Its blood is its life. So it's clear, consuming blood is like murder. Now, we do it differently, Filipinas. We're not worshiping when we eat dinuguan, correct? Yes? Yeah, we love it. <laughs> we go to the streets, we look for Betamax. You know that? There's a strange boxy type, you know, coagulated blood that we fry and, you know, it tastes good. It's not in the context of worship. The reason in the Bible it's forbidden is because it's done in the context of worship. Life is in the blood. Now here's the thing. We know that blood is prohibited. We're not supposed to consume blood. If this is so, why did Jesus command his disciples to drink his blood? Don't you find it odd? During the Last Supper, he said, drink this. This is my blood then jesus read leviticus 17 did he forget to read the whole book i don't think so in fact it's the opposite it's for this very reason that jesus commanded his disciples to drink his blood because he knew leviticus 17 he was reverse engineering the, the covenant the law let me explain this so every covenant there's an agreement and in every agreement, there must be blood. It's always sealed with blood. So what we do here is we sign our signature to you know, close the deal. That's how we do it. Or we shake hands. Correct? When we were kids, when we make, want to make a promise, we do pinky swear. Anyone still doing pinky swear? You don't? You're not kids anymore. What we do I mean, here in the West, they spit on the hand and shake on it. Correct? We don't do that anymore. Now, in the modern world, what we do is two heads of states sit on the table and they both sign the same document, accords, agreements between nations. That's how we do it. But in the ancient world, what they do is they offer blood. The one I told you, the blood compact. They slit their throat, their their wrists, put some blood on the wine and drink it. In the Old Testament, blood is important for making a covenant. You sign with your blood covenant. What Jesus is doing in the Lord's Supper is he's making a new covenant. There's a covenant in the Old Testament. When the people went to Mount Sinai, met with God, Moses splattered blood on the people. That's in Exodus chapter 18. But Jesus is making a new covenant. So when he did the Lord's Supper, he was making it. He was telling his disciples, you drink this. This is my blood Now, every every Jew understood the Passover. In obedience to God's command, they don't offer sacrifices outside of Jerusalem. So that means if you live somewhere in Gaza, well, no Israelites live in Gaza today, maybe in Samaria or in Phoenicia or down south in Negev, you have to travel for days before you reach Jerusalem and offer only in the temple grounds. And every Passover, the Israelite nation would gather in Jerusalem. Now, can you imagine that? Thousands and thousands of people would gather there in Jerusalem. And on the Passover, Jesus knew that he was being hunted down by the authorities. But he decided to enter Jerusalem. That's the last week he entered Jerusalem, even though his life is in trouble. Why? Because there's Passover Passover. He must celebrate the Passover in Jerusalem. So what would likely happen? Peter and John, probably the top managers of the 12 disciples, probably would have purchased a lamb, an unblemished animal, brought it to the temple, lined up with all the people, and waited for the priest to check if it's really an unblemished animal. And when the priest had checked, Peter would have probably slit the neck of the lamb, and one of the priests would take a bowl and take the blood of the animal. The priest would then take his bowl, go to the temple, go to the brazen altar, and pour the blood on the altar. The priest does this to every sacrifice. So imagine this. Imagine thousands of people sacrificing for one day, and all the priests would gather the blood, pour it on the altar. Imagine the blood bath surrounding the temple. Why is this necessary? Because God demands it. Life is in the blood, and life belongs to God. And after that, Peter and John would have probably went back to the upper room. They would have probably brought wine and bread. There's Passover. We're not very familiar with Passover, but during the Passover, it's a ritual and dinner at the same time. So they eat the bread, they eat the Paschal lamb, they also drink the wine. But there are four cups during the Passover. We just drink one cup here every second Sunday of the month. But the original Passover, they have four cups. That's how they, they do the, the Passover, even today, with the juice. The first cup is drunk at the beginning of the ritual, Passover. The second cup, and then, and then the host, that will be Jesus, he will tell the story of the Passover. He will retell the story of how God rescued them from Egypt and how they crossed the Red Sea and how God gave them manna in the wilderness and protected them. And then right after telling the story, he would raise the second cup and he would drink again together with his disciples. And then on the third cup, he would pronounce the blessing on the bread. That's why, in fact, in the Gospels of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, it will say that Jesus took the bread, broke it, and gave thanks and gave to his disciples. And then in the same way he took the cup, that's the third cup, he said, this cup is my blood. Drink this in remembrance of me. Now, Matthew 26, verse 27 is very interesting. He said, He took a cup, this is the third cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Now, it's not true that, they only, that Jesus Christ passed on the cup to all his 12 disciples. They have each individual cups. So they drank from each, each cups. But very interestingly, Jesus said, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Poured out is the language of Leviticus. You remember the priest who takes the bowl of blood, goes to the altar and pours the blood? That seals the covenant. What Jesus is saying here is now is that I am making a new covenant. And instead of going back to the temple, going back to the altar and pouring blood on there, it is my blood that you have to drink. This is kind of different. This is reverse engineering a new covenant. There's something I want you to pay attention to. You see, Jesus did not finish the ceremony. There's supposed to be four cups. And Matthew was very, very particular to point us that he did not finish the fourth cup. Look at Matthew 26, verse 30. And when they had sung him, they went out to the Mount of Olives. See, after the third cup, he will bless the bread break it, and then drink the third cup. And then, supposedly, they will sing a hymn and then drink the fourth cup. But in here, it says, they sang a hymn, they did not drink the cup, they went out to the Mount of Olives. Jesus specifically skipped the fourth cup. So they went to the Mount of Olives. What happened in the Mount of Olives? What you find Jesus is in the Garden of Gethsemane. Jesus was praying in the Garden of Gethsemane. What was he praying in the Garden of Gethsemane? He was praying about a cup. Father, may this cup pass from me. What is this cup? Is this a fourth cup? But he was talking about this cup of suffering. You don't hear about this cup until Friday, the following day at 3pm when he was already on, on the cross. This is what John says in John 19. After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said to fulfill the scripture, he said, I thirst. A jar full of sour wine stood there, so they put a sponge full of sour wine on a hiza branch and held it to his mouth. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it's finished. And he bowed his head and he gave the spirit. What exactly is finished? He was talking about the Passover ceremony because he did not finish the Passover ceremony. This was his fourth cup. This is the cup that seals the covenant. When Jesus says it is finished, he's telling his disciples and the world that the purpose of blood is for the atonement of sins, Leviticus 17. It is for the forgiveness of sins. It's for the cleansing of our sins, you and I. Jesus is cleansing us from our sins so that we can approach God in His holy place so that you and I can see God's face again, unlike Cain. You see, the fourth cup is Jesus putting His signature on the document that says, you are forgiven. The cup means you are forgiven. It's a signature paid by His own blood. You see, sometimes we feel unloved and unimportant Sometimes we feel that we are not valued. Sometimes we feel like, yeah, we've been doing a lot of things to earn the love of maybe our husband or wife or children or friends or people in the church, but we still feel alone sometimes. You see, your worth is not based on how many friends you have, your worth is not based on how much money you have, your worth is not based on anything that adds to your life today, your material possessions. Your worth is based on how much Jesus paid for your sins. That is your true worth. Your worth is based on the sacrifice of Jesus. And no matter what you feel, no matter what thoughts go through your head, listen to me, you are loved. Let's pray. Father, we thank you. Thank you for the reminder that you love us. Thank you for the reminder that you have paid so much so that we, your people, can be made whole. That regardless of our past, regardless of the sins that we made in the past, we are now, can start new and fresh because you have forgiven us from our sins. Father, thank you for the reminder that our worth is not based on what we do for you or what we don't do for you. our our worth is not based on, on what we accumulate in our lives. That our worth is solely based on your love. A lot of people are asking how much God loves us. But the outstretched arms on the cross says it all. That you loved us that much. That you had to spread all your arms to show us your love. Thank you, Father, for your sacrifice on the cross. We pray that we will be able to return back the favor and and love you just the same. I pray that you will bless us today. In Jesus' name, amen.